The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Well, it looks like... Even though a majority of the country would prefer something else, it looks like there's an excellent chance we could be heading for a Biden versus Trump rematch next year. Well, as much as this might be decided in voting booths and in electoral precincts around the country, it looks like a lot of different aspects of this campaign are going to be decided in courtrooms. President Trump is facing uh, more legal hurdles than I can count at this point. You have the Mar-a-Lago documents case. You have the Georgia grand jury investigation. You have the attorney general situation in New York. Probably about a dozen others uh, that I might not even be aware of. What does President Trump's history as a litigant tell us about where the next year and maybe the next five years are likely to take us as a country and likely to take him? Well, someone that has spent a lot of time looking into that is a former federal prosecutor in the Southern District of New York. He's a columnist for Washington Monthly, and he's the author of a book called Plaintiff in Chief, A Portrait of Donald Trump in 3,500 lawsuits. It is great to welcome back Jim Zirin. Uh, Jim, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Well, I'm delighted to be here with you, Frank. It's so, always a pleasure. Uh, the pleasure is uh, is all mine. Let me ask you about uh, some news that uh, our audience might have encountered over the last day or two. A lot of people were hearing a constant drumbeat of news related to the Mar-a-Lago documents case. In the case of President Biden, it looks like there might have been some classified documents handled in an improper way, taken from the White House when Biden was the vice president and put in essentially a private office. Based on what we know of this situation now, how do you think that whole situation looks? Well, it was a political gift to uh, the MAGA people and to Donald Trump because, of course, they'll draw a a parallel uh, between the two cases. And uh, Trump characteristically likes to point his finger at uh, whoever is attacking him and say, well, um, you uh, uh, didn't do this to Obama. Why are you doing it to me? Um, As if uh, I robbed a bank and... uh, I said somebody else robbed a bank and uh, they got away with it. Why can't I get away with it? But uh, the fact is there really isn't, uh, based on what we know now, uh, much of a parallel between the two cases, uh, both because of the quantity of documents uh, that were involved in the two cases. In Trump's case, there were about uh, 325 documents. In Biden's case, there are 10. Uh, And the significance of the documents, because... Uh, the Trump documents, a uh, hundred of them, uh, consisting of 700 pages, were the highest levels of classification, uh, while the Biden documents, we don't know the level of classification, but uh, there is uh, no indication that they were the highest level. The Trump documents involved nuclear uh, uh, secrets of uh, a foreign country. The Biden documents don't appear to involve nuclear secrets. So. There are many distinctions that can be drawn. The most important one from a legal standpoint is that Trump resisted the subpoena uh, of the grand jury uh, in Washington uh, and uh, certified finally that 
he turned over all the documents, which turned out to be false because when the FBI went in and executed a search warrant, they found additional documents. Well, in the case of Biden, um, the very next day after the documents were discovered, they were turned over to the National Archives. So uh, there are uh, many distinctions. Another is uh, Trump claimed um, that uh, perhaps the documents were planted at Mar-a-Lago, but the documents that were in question, uh, uh, the 12 boxes in in his storage room and uh, in um, his office, uh, were in his uh, continuous custody. Uh, So it's hard to say they were planted while... Uh, in the case of Biden, we're not in his continuous custody, so it's <laughs> entirely possible that the Biden documents uh, were planted by someone. At least it's plausible. But at this point, we really don't know. Um, the essential distinction is that, that Biden has appeared to cooperate with uh, the government and turned over the documents the next day while Trump stonewalled. Keeping in mind, obviously, that there's no similar drama around refusing to surrender documents and keeping in mind the difference between the volume of documents involved with uh, Biden and the volume of documents involved with uh, with Trump. It's been reported that the protocols surrounding classified information are pretty clear. And you'd think that there's nobody that knows those rules better than Joe Biden, not only from his time as president and vice president, but from the many decades that he spent in the U.S. Senate. At the very least, is there a sloppiness here that Biden uh, should have been better prepared to handle? Well, Biden uh, said he was surprised that uh, there were classified documents uh, there in his his office, his think tank office in Washington. He'd been away from the documents uh, for some period of time. Um, And um, he... uh, uh, possibly was sloppy. Uh, possibly he wasn't sloppy. They were mixed in with other personal documents like the plans for his son's funeral. Um, and um, uh, uh, we really don't know at this point. And it warrants further investigation and uh, uh, before we can make a judgment as to uh, whether he was sloppy or he wasn't sloppy. Uh, Trump's, but even if he was negligent, even if it was a mistake, uh, Trump's conduct was quite intentional. He um, knew that he was taking classified documents from the White House. He knew he was keeping them there at Mar-a-Lago. We don't really know why he did this. We don't know who had access to the documents besides Trump. Uh, they were there on the premises. Uh, there were no safeguards, and some of those documents required maximum security. So uh, it's a very, both the cases appear to be quite dissimilar rather than comparable, as is suggested by uh, uh, the uh, House uh, uh, Oversight Committee, uh, Representative Comer, and um, uh, by even by um, uh, Kevin Speaker McCarthy. Uh, McCarthy. Yeah, it does seem though that even though the facts may be dissimilar, it appears that Merrick Garland, the Attorney General, m- might be handling them similarly in terms of uh, a bit of uh, an arm's length uh, approach to them and appointing people that uh, are generally regarded as independent arbiters to investigate the individual cases. Is that fair? Uh, I think that is fair. Uh, he turned over the Mar-a-Lago case to uh, Jack Smith, uh, along with the uh, January 6th case. 
uh, and so that you have a special counsel. And in the case of the Biden papers, uh, actually, the U.S. attorney in Illinois, who was a Trump appointee, has been investigating that situation since November when the documents were first turned over. And as I understand it, he has uh, rendered a report to Garland, or is about to, and uh, we'll have to see where the investigation goes from there. I don't mean to minimize uh, 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 the Biden papers. I think we have to know more. Um, we have to know more about the circumstances of uh, the documents being retained in his office and uh, what uh, the nature of the documents was uh, and uh, their degree of classification and uh, right. But and your, other your point is that might bear on it. At this point, it doesn't appear to be the same thing as what we doesn't saw. Doesn't appear to be the same thing. There are many distinguishing factors. Got it. Uh, if people are just tuning, we're talking with uh, James Zyron. He's a former federal prosecutor in the Southern District of New York, columnist for Washington Monthly, and the author of the book Plaintiff in Chief: A Portrait of Donald Trump in 3,500 Lawsuits. A very entertaining and very informative book that really chronicles uh, President Trump's whole litigation history going back about 60 years. We're going to get into the book in just a minute. But uh, some other legal issues that uh, President Trump is facing involve this Georgia grand jury. In the aftermath of the 2020 election, I think by now people that pay attention to this have probably heard the audio of President Trump speaking to authorities, essentially saying, you need to find me X number of votes. And a lot of people are saying this is um, an indication that he was looking to, um, you know, do uh, something that was not exactly on the up and up. Apparently, the Georgia grand jury has uh, prepared a report. What do we know about the status of the Georgia case at this point, And where does that case go from here? Well, the Georgia case, uh, Frank, is uh, particularly uh, dangerous uh, uh, for Donald Trump because uh, assuming he or another Republican uh, is elected in 2024, uh, they will have no power to pardon him uh, since uh, the pardon power only exists for uh, offenses against the United States. This if if he's state, convicted, if he's convicted. State offense. If he's convicted. The second aspect is that if Garland indicts and there's a federal indictment and a Republican gets in and uh, appoints a, uh, a MAGA-oriented attorney general, uh, that attorney general could simply discontinue the prosecution as uh, uh, Bill Barr did in uh, uh, the case of uh, General Flynn. So uh, it, um, it's a very dangerous case if he's convicted. Now, where it stands now, uh, we're really a little bit at sea. We know uh, that the grand jury uh, made a recommendation and gave a report to prosecutors in Georgia. Apparently, that's the Georgia procedure. Um, it's unlikely that they merely issued uh, what lawyers call a presentment, which is simply a finding of wrongdoing without a recommendation uh, that there be an indictment. If uh, prosecutors uh, follow the grand jury report uh, and there's an indictment of Trump under various violations of the Georgia election statutes, um, then the case in Georgia will be off and running and will continue. And so what do we think the timetable is for that, for when we'll know if they're indictments? A lot of people are wondering how that's going to coincide with the political calendar over the next year and a half. 
Well, of course, the, this is a politically charged prosecution because, particularly because Trump has announced that he's a candidate, uh, and uh, you could just visualize whatever the timetable is. I would think uh, if there is a recommendation for indictment, an indictment would be coming uh, in Georgia, would be handed down within the next thirty days. Um, and uh, if there is an indictment, then the question is. How will that play out? Will Trump go into the Georgia courts and say, look, uh, I'm running for president and uh, I uh, can't stand trial now. Uh, I have to uh, be free to, uh, and my mind has to be free to uh, focus on the campaign. Whether or not a Georgia judge would uh, uh, buy that argument is another question. Um, so either the trial would go forward reasonably quickly or else... Uh, uh, there'd be a postponement until it's seen uh, uh, what happens in the primary and Trump is nominated in the general election. There's also the possibility that if Trump isn't nominated by the Republican Party, uh, he'll launch a third-party candidacy, in which case he'll still have the argument that he's running for president. So he'll try to... Trump's characteristic litigation tactic when he's charged with anything besides counterattacking against his accuser is to seek delay and he would certainly try to delay uh, any indictment brought against him by anyone um, on the basis that he is a candidate for uh, president of the United States. Uh, talking with uh, James Zirin, author of the book Plaintiff in Chief. Jim, obviously, I realize your expertise is a legal analysis, not necessarily political analysis. But we've actually seen a number of world leaders around the world run for office successfully, either after being charged or in some cases, even after being convicted. We saw uh, Benjamin Netanyahu just returned to power as the prime minister of Israel. We've seen following a prison sentence, uh, Lula, the new president or the and the old president of Brazil uh, after serving time in prison, come back and uh, uh, win a very tough election. Silvio Berlusconi in Italy comes to mind. I'm sure there are a dozen other recent examples that we can cite. Politically, do you think that uh, a prosecution of Donald Trump on a state level, whether it's a state like Georgia or a state like New York, for instance, could that actually feed in to his political appeal and feed into the notion, especially if there's a, a competitive primary against someone like a DeSantis, feed into the notion among some of his supporters that he's constantly under attack and he's constantly being persecuted? Well, the question is, run that argument for now for many years, and uh, the question is, how many times can he go to the well? Uh, if he's indicted for election fraud in Georgia, that's those are very serious crimes, and how members of the voting public uh, will uh, analyze uh, those charges and uh, what they, uh, uh, how that will affect their attitude. Uh, it really, um, since I'm not a pollster, I, I can't mm. uh, give you an opinion on, except I think that probably his MAGA base thinks he's a victim anyway and thinks he's the cat's meow anyway will be unaffected by the fact of the indictment. And others who were independent or maybe on the fence um, might decide that they've had enough with uh, Trump. I think there's a mood in the country right now of Trump fatigue and uh, many people feel, and even those who supported him uh, when he first ran for office, feel they've had enough of Trump and uh, they'd rather turn to a, a more substantive candidate. Uh, 
Well, yeah, I'm certainly hearing that from a lot of the callers that I talk to on a regular basis who were enthusiastic Trump backers in the last two election cycles, but uh, have sort of tired of uh, the Trump show, for lack of a better description, and are uh, more willing to take a chance on a candidate like a DeSantis or another conservative that they feel is Trump without the drama. So, uh, well, I, But that's why I'm curious whether the prosecution would sort of rally those potentially wavering Trump supporters back to Trump's side. But I guess only time uh, only time will tell. Lastly, before we talk about plaintiff in chief, I have to ask you to explain uh, what went on with the Trump organization. Alan Weisselberg, uh, former President Trump's longtime chief financial officer, was sentenced by a New York judge to five months in jail. He's heading off to Rikers Island. Evidently, the Trump company was found guilty, but obviously a company can't go to prison. And Weisselberg cooperated in this investigation. I followed a lot of trials on a state level and on a federal level where there are cooperators. And oftentimes they get away with doing minimal jail time. And usually they end up putting someone in prison. I don't remember seeing an instance where someone cooperates against a company and the cooperator is the one that ends up in prison. Break down this case for us if you can, Jim. Well, as as you pointed out, you can't put the company in prison, but he was instrumental in uh, convicting the con- company. So uh, presumably his cooperation was given some weight by the sentencing judge. He did plead guilty to uh, these um, uh, crimes of tax fraud uh, and business fraud, of uh, which the company was uh, also convicted. And um, the uh, judge uh, sentenced him on the basis of his guilty plea. Uh, But whatever fraud was involved, he had said at the outset that he was not going to cooperate against Donald Trump, but he would cooperate against the Trump organization. And um, he uh, is now uh, facing a prison term. There's a question as to whether he might change his mind and give evidence against Donald Mm. Trump in order to avoid going to jail. Uh, we really don't know. That's up in the air. Uh, and that's maybe why the judge sentenced him to prison uh, because uh, and refused to uh, suspend sentence, which the judge could have done, uh, because he was hoping that, uh, as the prosecutors were, that Weisselberg would be willing to uh, give evidence against Trump because the criminal investigation of Trump in New York County uh, is uh, continuing and... Uh, Journalist uh, David K. Johnston, who's been following Trump for years and who's also a lawyer, uh, recently broke down a uh, very convincing uh, state tax evasion case against Trump. And uh, perhaps they're interested in Weisselberg's testifying in that case. The book, Plaintiff in Chief, A Portrait of Donald Trump in 3,500 Lawsuits, in addition to being pretty informative uh, and I would venture to say pretty critical of President Trump, it's also um, very creative in terms of all the books that have been written about Donald Trump. I don't know that anybody has uh, taken the tact of looking at his litigation history. What inspired you to write this book? Where'd you get the idea from to look at his history of lawsuits? Well, I started uh, uh, because uh, I know him uh, with uh, the uh, legacy and tactics of Roy Cohn, whom I had 
uh, seen in court, whom I knew as a lawyer, uh, and uh, I knew exactly how he approached litigation as a form of uh, lawfare, warfare, um, and uh, the destructive tactics that he used. And I was struck by the uh, fact that, of course, Trump was uh, uh, mentored by Roy Cohn and mentored in litigation. Uh, Cohn represented him in the race discrimination case, which was the first litigation uh, that Trump was uh, involved in along with his father. And that was in 1973. And in that case, uh, uh, Trump, uh, after it was filed by the Justice Department for violation of civil rights of tenants who uh, sought to live in Trump properties and were rejected because of their race, rejected because they were black. Uh, and the evidence was quite overwhelming. Uh, the um, Trump consulted a number of lawyers in New York, and they all said, settle the case, take, the, take a decree, uh, admit without admitting or denying that you discriminated, agree that you won't discriminate in the future. And uh, Cohn said, nonsense, you've got to fight. And uh, Trump liked that advice. So what they did was, as uh, soon as uh, Cohn got into the case, they filed a counterclaim for $100 million against the government for bringing the case in the first place. Well, that was dismissed quite quickly. The next thing they did was they began to attack uh, the FBI and the Justice Department for what they called were Gestapo-like tactics in interviewing tenants and uh, uh, managers in the various Trump properties, rental agents. And um, the judge finally held a hearing on all that. This took many years uh, and uh, rejected all of those claims. And then how did they end up? At the end of the day, they agreed without admitting or denying that they discriminated. They said they uh, would not discriminate again in the future. Of course, they did continue to discriminate. And I saw this uh, pattern of... Uh, cutting corners, uh, contempt for the law, uh, refusing to abide by legal standards that almost anyone would abide by, uh, and in Trump's conduct. And I saw began to get interested in all the lawsuits that he brought against people, many of them frivolous, and all the lawsuits that he was defending, uh, where he had kind of did the same thing, counterclaims, blackening the other side, using the press, calling press conferences, trying the cases in, court, in, um, in the press, and using the media to bring pressure on the legal process. And uh, I saw it all coming. And um, he continued to use those tactics after he, uh, when he ran for office, and he used those tactics um, uh, while he was in office. Jim, I think, unfortunately, I'm going to there. I have a ton of other questions for you based on some of the cases that you cover in this book, Atlantic City, the USFL, and a whole bunch of others, uh, but we're pressed for time. So we'll do this again in the future. Plaintiff in Chief is the book. Its author is former federal prosecutor James Zirin. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call. Our number is 833-969-4447. That's 833-969-4447. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. 
Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big. 